Have you ever had one of those weeks where absolutely nothing seems to go right? When your life just seems to be going from bad to worse, do you ever wonder, am I under some kind of curse? Well, the truth is, you are. Today on In Storied, we read the curse at the end of Genesis chapter 3. We'll talk about what makes for a curse and how we tend to think of curses today in our modern age, and we'll talk about one of my favorite sports, baseball. Welcome to In Storied. I'm Corey Smith. The year 1918 was, for a very long time, one of the most infamous years of baseball history, especially if you lived in Boston. From 1915 to 1918, the Red Sox were the most red-hot team in baseball, winning the World Series three times over that four-year span. A key part of that success was a player that many still consider to be the greatest of all time, and that is Babe Ruth. Ruth, or the Bambino, as he was sometimes called, was an excellent pitcher from the very beginning of his career. But it wasn't long before the Red Sox and all of the rest of baseball got to see what Ruth would ultimately become known for, his bat. From 1918 to 1931, he led the league in home runs every year but two. And one of those two years saw Ruth play less than 100 games. He was just that dominant. And when the Red Sox won the World Series in 1918, Ruth was really just getting started. But after the 1919 season, Red Sox owner Harry Frazee traded Ruth to the New York Yankees for $100,000, an unprecedented amount of money at the time. But as one Babe Ruth biographer would later put it, it was the sports steal of the century for New York. Prior to Ruth's arrival, the Yankees had never played in a World Series. But during Ruth's tenure with the team, they played in seven World Series and won four of them. In that same stretch, Boston didn't finish even one season with a winning record. In fact, they even finished dead last in the league nine out of 11 consecutive seasons. These trends for both teams continued long after Ruth retired. The Yankees kept winning, becoming one of the most successful franchises in sports history, and the Red Sox played in only four World Series in the 84 years after trading Ruth, and they lost all four of those. It was a remarkably bad run for a really long time, and at some point in the late 1980s, the Red Sox misery on the field began to be referred to as a curse. A sports writer for the Boston Globe called it the curse of the Bambino, the seemingly unbreakable burden of losing that the Red Sox and Boston sports fans had to suffer as a direct result of the sin committed by owner Harry Frazee when he shipped Ruth to New York. It wasn't until 2004 that the curse was finally broken really in superb fashion, when the Red Sox came back from a three-game deficit to defeat the Yankees in the American League Championship Series. And then they went on to sweep the Cardinals in four games to win the World Series. It's also worth mentioning that the final out of the series that gave Boston their long-awaited win 
was against Cardinal player Edgar Renteria, who wore number three on his jersey. The same number worn by, of course, Babe Ruth. For the most part, the Western world doesn't put much stock in curses. These superstitious kinds of things don't really have a place in modern society where we have the advantage of science and technology to explain things that might at first seem otherwise unexplainable. But sometimes there are troubling things that when they happen to the same person or group of people for a very long time, they seem to take on an unnatural or even supernatural kind of quality. And although we know better in our rational minds, we might just start to think that these unfortunate patterns are the result of a curse. The latter half of Genesis chapter 3 is taken up with God pronouncing a curse on all of creation for what has happened with the humans at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And much like I think there is no avoiding having the tree in the garden to begin with, I think that because of the human's decision to take the fruit and pursue wisdom on their own, there is no avoiding this curse as a result. So first, let's notice this exchange between God and the humans. This is essentially the beginning of a courtroom scene. It might seem strange that the all-knowing God of the universe would ask the kinds of questions that he does here. He asks them, where are you, when surely he knows where they are. And he asks them what they have done, but he must already know, right? I mean, but God is not doing any information gathering here. He asks questions for relational reasons. When he asks, where are you? This is an opportunity for them to stop hiding in plain sight and to show up and be present with God who is present with them. And when he asks, what have you done? It's an opportunity to confess and to take ownership of their actions, which neither of them do. God starts with the man asking, Have you eaten of the fruit of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man answers, The woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Well, at least he acknowledges at the end of that statement that, yes, he did eat the fruit, but that's after he blames both the woman and God himself. The woman is the one who gave him the fruit, and God is the one who gave him the woman. It's a kind of half-hearted confession, really. So he's definitely not taking full ownership as he should. When God turns to the woman and asks her, what is this that you have done? The woman makes a similar kind of defense. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So like the man, she does admit that she ate the fruit, but also like the man, she finds someone to blame. In this case, the serpent. The serpent pleads the fifth. He doesn't say anything, probably because he figured this moment was coming all along. And the serpent is the first one God speaks to when we enter into the sentencing phase of this courtroom proceeding. That's one way we can look at the curse in Genesis 3 that might be helpful for us as a judicial sentencing handed down by God. Our modern associations of curses tend to be around things of the occult, witchcraft, sorcery, spells, things like that. 
or on the lighter side of things, sports superstitions like the curse of the Bambino. Since neither of these directions can get at what is meant by the curse in Genesis, it's good to have something familiar we can compare it with. And the picture of a judge handing down a sentence, I think, works for us. Now, I will say this. There are some basic elements of what a curse does that seem to be common across the board. Two main elements, really. One is that a curse is the result of, or a response to, some kind of wrongdoing. We're seeing that in Genesis here, and you also see it in the curse of the Bambino. Harry Frazee should never have traded away Babe Ruth, apparently. So then you have the curse. It's the hard consequence for that wrongdoing. The other main element is the length or duration of the curse. A curse could be for life. In fact, the phrase, all the days of your life, comes up twice in Genesis when God delivers the curse. And it could be an indeterminate amount of time, or even generational. There is the idea of generational curses in the folklore of several different cultures. There are even a few instances in the Bible of things that could be understood as referring to generational types of curses. The Genesis curse is intended to be understood as the ultimate generational curse. And it's not always clear what it would take to lift these curses. Now given, when you're talking about Genesis 3, and you already know the New Testament, then you know the answer to the curse. But if you can, at this point, try not to read Jesus into this just yet. And try to imagine that the first three chapters of the Bible are all you have to go on as we read what comes next. And that way you can get a feel for the scope of just what a tremendous loss this is with no hope or understanding of what could possibly turn it around. God says to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The best way to understand the serpent having to be on his belly from this point on probably has to do with his power being stripped away in some sense. Remember when we talked about serpents as symbols in the ancient Near East and how the serpent on the headdress of Pharaoh was a cobra, hood flared out, reared up, ready to strike? It's a symbol of power, right? The serpent being forced to remain on his belly then is about a loss of power. It's a picture of a far less dangerous animal than before. But it's not rendered completely harmless, as the next part will clearly show. God then says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head, and you shall strike his heel. So the serpent then will still be capable of striking and harming the human, but the human will also kill the serpent. Now again, don't think Jesus just yet, because one big takeaway here we don't want to miss is what will ultimately be the theme of the entire curse. And that is, as a direct result of the fracturing of relationship between the humans and God, literally every other type of relationship within creation is thrown off its axis. You see it here with the enmity God pronounces between the serpent and the woman, and because it extends to the offspring, 
This is the generational curse. But as we read on into Genesis, we'll see the scope broaden to include not just the serpent, but the entire animal kingdom. In Genesis chapter 9, God will tell Noah and his family, the only surviving humans on earth after the flood, that all of the animals will fear them. This is such a departure from Genesis chapter 2 where you have all of the animals coming before the man to be named, to be placed under his charge, to be cared for. Now the relationship between animals and humanity is cursed. So after the serpent receives his sentencing, God turns his attention to the man and the woman, starting first with the woman. Now, as we see what the curse looks like for them, keep in mind what their God-given mission is, to be fruitful and to have dominion. That mission is not revoked because of what has happened, but it will become deeply frustrated because of it. The humans were told in chapter 1 to be fruitful and multiply. Now God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. The curse will now directly impact the woman's fruitfulness because what is being multiplied here is the pain of childbirth. The next line says, Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he must rule over you. The humans, the man and the woman, are supposed to have dominion, to rule, over all creation. Again, this is lined out in chapter 1. Now, they are going to be trying to rule and have dominion over each other. It's a serious problem for fulfilling their God-given mission. And just like we see with human-animal relations, there is now a breakdown within human relationships. The unity of Adam, the two sides of humanity, male and female, is hindered through the curse. God continues now with the man, turning to him and saying, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Notice two things. One, the man has listened to the voice of another human, his wife, instead of the voice of God. This will not be the last time this happens in the Bible. Humans heeding the voices of other humans instead of the voice of God is one form of trusting in one's own wisdom instead of God's wisdom. Because ultimately here, Adam is still relying on his own wisdom. That is, by choosing to value his wife's wisdom over God's wisdom. This is important for us to see because whether we struggle with being prideful and trusting in our own wisdom or if we completely lack self-confidence and tend to submit ourselves to the wisdom of others because we don't view ourselves as being wise at all, both of these are forms of trusting in one's own wisdom instead of God's wisdom. Even the person who doesn't consider themselves wise falls into this boat if they don't look to God for wisdom but seek the wisdom of others first. 
The second thing has to do with the man's relationship to the ground. This is yet another relationship casualty that we may not think of since this isn't a relationship that the man has with another sentient being. But it's the man's relationship to the creation itself, which is supposed to be a partnership too. The humans are supposed to work the ground and keep it, and it's a good thing. And in return, the ground is supposed to yield its fruit. But now it's going to be contentious. The man's working with the ground is described as painful, just like the woman's fruitful work of childbearing. Instead of cooperating with the man, the ground fights him with thorns and thistles as its weapons. So the animals will fight the humans, the ground will fight the humans, and the humans will fight amongst themselves, vying for power and control. And the man and the woman waste no time in doing this. In fact, it happens right off the bat. At the end of God's sentencing that he hands down, the very next thing that happens is the man names the woman. It is here that she receives her name Eve, which means life giver or mother of all living. It's a good name, very appropriate for the first mother. But why name her at this point? When do most people receive their names? It's when they're born, right? So when was Eve born? Well, that would be back in chapter 2. And remember, there's already some naming taking place in chapter 2 because that's when the man is naming all of the animals. And remember, we said that naming the animals for the man was to place them under his dominion. Now, when he sees the woman for the first time in chapter 2, he calls her something, Ish-Shah which means woman, or more appropriately, wife. But to call her what she is to him is not the same as naming her. If he were going to name her, now would be the time to do it. But he doesn't name her until after the curse. After God says that her desire will be contrary to him, but he must rule over her. And what does it look like for him to rule over her? Well, it starts with him naming her. It's an act of placing her under his dominion. And watch how she responds to this in just the very next chapter. The beginning of Genesis chapter 4 says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So Eve is the one who names their first son, not Adam. Now that in and of itself is not unusual. More often than not, in the Old Testament, it is the mother who names the child. But what is unusual is she calls her baby boy a man. I'm not aware of anywhere else in the Old Testament where anyone is called a man from birth. And the Hebrew word gotten there, when she says, I have gotten a man, means to acquire or possess. So the significance of this could be that, while just earlier we saw a man naming Eve, now Eve is naming a man. There's a power struggle going on within the first family dynamic. The last part of the curse is death. For you are dust, God says, and to dust you shall return. This is not death on the spot, as we've already observed. This is the inevitability of death. 
Death won't come to Adam for hundreds of years yet, but it will come. But before that happens, he will first witness death. He and his wife will both live to see their firstborn son take the life of his younger brother. This is life east of Eden. Adam and Eve have been banished from the garden. Their access to the tree of life has been cut off, and they have lost being in God's eminent presence, which is what the tree of life is truly about. Everlasting life is constantly being in the presence of God. The curse is very much a world of their own making. Trying to take hold of wisdom for themselves to be able to live and create life that is good on earth on their own without God turns out to be the opposite of good. It backfires on every relational front. And death is always looming. That's the running theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. The book is usually attributed to Solomon, who's not only a king with all of the resources of a king, but he's blessed with wisdom from God. It's a wisdom he asked for, not a wisdom that he reached out and took for himself. But even he reflects on just the futility of life, even a life with all of the power and wisdom he has at his disposal. It's still a life that will ultimately end in death. The curse of the Bambino and these other modern notions of curses we have may achieve the level of curse status because what's going on there may seem so bad, so out of the ordinary, that they must be cursed. Even if it's something as trivial as a losing streak that runs so long like a baseball curse, it's just hard to imagine that there would be any other reasonable explanation. It must be a curse. But the thing about the curse of Genesis 3 is... The fallout of it has been going on so long, it's just normal to us. In fact, most of us don't even think about it. Most of us don't walk around thinking that we're cursed because we live in a world characterized by sin and death, and it's the only kind of world we've ever known. But when we read these first few chapters of the Bible, we see a world where sin and death are not normal. And it helps us tap into these desires for a world that isn't under this curse, even when really the world as we see it doesn't give us any reason to even have that kind of hope. C.S. Lewis famously put it this way. He says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The good news is, God is already in the process of setting this world back to good. He forgives Adam and Eve. When they weren't able to cover for their own guilt by making clothes of leaves, God covers them with clothes of animal skin. Even embedded within the words of the curse itself is that picture of a human. Although his heel will be struck by the serpent, he will succeed in crushing its head so that evil will be defeated and the curse will one day be no more. The Apostle Paul signs off his letter to the Romans this way. He says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Look at how Paul takes this language from Genesis 3 and what he does with it. God is the one doing the crushing, and Satan is being crushed under your feet. 
When Charlie Daniels was interviewed about that famous song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, he said, You can't beat the devil without the Lord. I didn't have that in the song, but I should have. God and Jesus does the crushing, and yet it is under our feet. Just don't try and crush the serpent without God. It didn't work in the beginning. It won't work now. We have to trust a wisdom that far exceeds our own and trust that this cursed world will one day be made right beyond anything we could ever hope for. And that's what's on the horizon. But for now, as the story unfolds from this point, we'll see that things will get far worse before they get better. Next week, we look at Cain and Abel. Humans, once again, continue to listen to a voice other than the voice of God, and God continues to show mercy even in the worst of circumstances. We hope you're enjoying and storied. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review so others can find us. We'll see you next week.